not everything about Scripture is crystal clear. For some reason, God allowed his word to include things that are not exactly clear. What does that mean for us? It means we're really dependent on his Holy Spirit to help us so that we can have right understanding. So I'm going to attempt to help us work through this passage today and draw out of it right understanding and lessons that we need to pay attention to. I was going to introduce this message. By the way, apologies for the Apple ad this morning. (laughs) Happens all over the world. This morning I was going to introduce this message by looking at the modern expressions of the worship of Belzebul or Belzebub, the prince of demons. In our generation, this created spiritual being is most commonly known as Satan, Satan himself. I decided not to give him any more publicity. Suffice to say, he's gaining popularity in our own pop culture at an alarmingly rapid rate. And he truly is the enemy of our soul. Today, in the third chapter of Mark, we'll see how Jesus responded to the accusation of driving out demons by the power of Belzebul. In the next 40 minutes or so, we'll see 30 minutes or so. (laughs) We'll see from 13 verses at the end of chapter 3 that Jesus experienced three forms of opposition. And let's see what he did about it. Father, I don't want to go any further without thanking you for giving us your son and for giving us your spirit so that we can follow after you with a whole heart and we can be fruitful, productive in your kingdom. Help us this morning to understand your word and help me to not stumble or say things that aren't true. Uh, Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Let's begin by reading uh, Mark 3, 22 through 35. And we might have had a really nice uh, PowerPoint for you this morning, but it just didn't work out. Even this morning, I was still trying to fix it. And finally, I just abandoned it and had to acknowledge, God can do just fine without my PowerPoint. Verse 22, chapter 3. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Belzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, 
how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And in verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they asked him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my brother, or who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whosoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And everybody at the table said, Amen? Now, well, probably something more like, Huh? Sometimes the things Jesus says are a little mysterious. I'd like to actually back up a little to chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, because I'd like to spend a few moments trying to get some additional perspective about this uh, passage, the situation confronting Jesus when his family shows up, literally insulting him and opposing his ministry. Verse 20, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. Wow. Really? It's a basic human trait that our personal experiences often shape our opinions and conclusions despite what is real and true. Sometimes we don't understand because we already believe something that is in fact false. It's always been this way. We see fresh evidence of this dynamic at work in the war happening this week in Israel and Gaza. People doing things based on what they believe to be true when in fact it is not true. We do it in our own lives. In the case of the earthly family of Jesus, he was the older brother. And today we can understand that they had no idea how old he really was. Since, in fact, 
He was the word of God at creation. John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So how old is Jesus? Eternal. Hmm. This was who was living in the family house. To his earthly brothers and sisters, he was the eldest brother who was always impossible to measure up to. Mom seemed to always like him best. These are real family dynamics, aren't they? He played with them. He ate with them. He did chores and he learned the family trade. Once in a while, he'd cut himself on a tool or skin his knee. But he bled blood, the blood of man, just like them. So they thought he was just like them. They couldn't yet see that his blood was righteous and would one day be shed for the forgiveness of sins, their sins, and the sins of everyone who would put their faith in him. All they could see was that Jesus was shirking his responsibilities as the firstborn in a family that had apparently lost their human father. I can see how it would be hard not to think that way. They had no idea that he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1:15 through 17. For in him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Does that leave anything out? Nothing. But not knowing his true nature must have been aggravating to his siblings that he'd rather spend time wandering about with strangers, pretending to be a rabbi when everyone knew he was a carpenter, untrained, unsponsored to do the work of the ministry. He'd rather do that than take care of his responsibilities at home and toward his mother and brothers and sisters. Calling him crazy probably wasn't much of a stretch in their minds. Seriously, I'm glad I wasn't born into Mary and Joseph's family. I probably would have been right there calling my big brother out of his mind too because we see things with our eyes. I doubt that Mary agreed with her grown-up sons about Jesus being crazy. She knew to some degree who her firstborn really was. I think she also knew why he was here. When, when an angel speaks to you about God's plans, I'm sure you always remember his words. That's pretty significant. 
I suspect that she was like most other moms who discover that their adult sons don't always listen to them. Well, side advice here, side pulpit advice for today. Adult sons out there, make more of an effort to listen to and honor your mother. It's a good thing. <laughs> Can Yes, I can get an amen. Hmm. I suspect that for Jesus, the sense of being in an earthly family, as he's a little boy, gave way to the awareness of being like no other, being both son of man and son of God. I think Jesus went through the ultimate experiences of not being like not feeling like he was part of the family, that he was different. He must have experienced the discomfort of realizing I'm different. I don't really belong here. I'd like to pause here for a minute and recognize that there may be some people here this morning who have at some point struggled with feelings of not belonging or being different then. Can I just encourage you to rest in your father's lap? Stop looking for and striving for significance or a sense of belonging here on earth. When you were reborn, you were adopted by your spiritual father. Your true father of origin has called you his own. By true father of origin, I mean the father who knew you from conception in your mother's womb. No, even before conception. The man I got to call father, Aubrey was his name. Aubrey did not know me until he could hold me in his hands. That was just my day of birth. My birthday. At that point, I was already nine months old. It's too bad our society doesn't recognize that. Every child born is somewhere around nine months old already. Too bad we only count days of life from when we could see with our eyes. Too bad we're so commonly content to walk by sight instead of walking by faith. Anyway, our true Father has known us from before the foundations of the world. That's not just me. That's Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Yes, praise God. even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Somehow God knew. And he said, mm, that one's mine. As if he's pointing right at you. Hmm. When we feel a little bit different from others, it might just be a reminder from our true father that we are different and that's a good thing. Maybe we should be focusing on the business, 
on his business in a way that others will not. We do well to remember that the right perspective makes all the difference in how we see ourselves and how we see our true value in him. You feel a little out of place sometimes? It's because this is not your place. We have a place that's been prepared for us in heaven. And we're going to get there. It's hard to imagine that the first 30 years of Jesus' life, what was it like? But we know that the young Jesus did things based on his true identity. I suspect that Mary told him about who his actual father was. She knew it was true because she also knew that she'd never been with a man. Women are never confused about things like that. Joseph also knew that he was only a foster father to Mary's first son. We can also know that as a boy, Jesus was aware of who his true father was because we think at the age of 12 or so, Jesus ditched his family during the Passover feast. Families were kind of different then. More of the community kind of thing. He spent at least four days in his true father's house, the temple in Jerusalem, listening to the teachers and answering their questions and leaving them dumbfounded. How does this little kid know so much? In this passage, Jesus is over 30 years old and he was turning out to be very different. You know, not normal. I suspect that some of his family were quite worried about the family's reputation. They may have heard things like, you better do something, guys. Your brother has kind of left the reservation here. We like him. You know we do, but he's saying things that are going to get him in trouble. Jesus' brothers and sisters may have been saying to him, Come on, Jesus, we have to live here, you know? Don't you care about how you're making us all look? Or maybe they felt genuine concern that his mental state wasn't right. After all, he's saying some pretty wild and unconventional things. Whatever they were thinking, they had reached the point where they were going to attempt an intervention. What did Jesus do about it? Called them in, told them off, set them straight. No. At that moment, he didn't do anything. Nothing? Lesson for us is that sometimes opposition comes and the best thing to do about it is nothing. Doing nothing doesn't sit well with some of us. But sometimes it's just the best response. We'll see in just a few verses that Jesus recognized that they were, what they were saying was opposition. Opposition to him completing his mission. Hmm. 
later this morning, in a little bit, not too much later. After we look at the big confrontation Jesus has with the scribes, we'll discover that Jesus using the situation with his own family to make another point about the nature of the kingdom of God. But first, the Jerusalem scribes make a colossal error in sealing their eternal fate. Opposition number two. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Belzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Hmm. It makes me think of the old phrase, we're from the government and we're here to help. Actually, I see them as behaving more like today's Islamic matawa that we got to meet in Saudi Arabia. They're the religious police who have authority to enforce the religious rules that everyone must follow. We're walking through the mall, and the Matawa comes up to me and points at her and says, cover your hair. Cover your hair. I'm like, he was talking about her, but he couldn't look at her. That's against the rules. Really religious people of all flavors really like rules, and they love enforcing rules on others. The scribes have decided at that point that according to what they've heard, Jesus is getting out of line with the law. And in the midst of a crowd, they stepped up and hurled an accusation at Jesus saying, you cast out demons by Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, depending on which, it's all the same, it's Satan the prince of demons, which is to say you are possessed by Satan himself. Satan is the source of your power. That's when they really stepped in it. Their words were spoken to Jesus, but were likely meant to sway the crowd from listening to him. They were losing control and they were doing something about it. They wanted to stop the people from following Jesus. They were religious professionals, empowered to keep everyone in line with the Mosaic law. And Jesus was a threat. Jesus responded like he often did with parables. He's going to talk. This is where we have him saying, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. As a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And Satan, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. End of parable one. Now parable two, he barely takes a breath between them. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Let's take a little sidebar for a minute here. The full counsel of scripture helps us understand that the idea of people, living souls, being neutral and fought over by good and evil is not a true depiction of reality. We're not neutral. Scripture teaches that Adam and Eve forfeited fellowship with God when they chose to believe Satan instead of God. This was rebellion against God, and that rebellion was the sin that separated all of mankind from God. Do we belong to God when we're born? No, we belong to the God of this world. We don't have to stay there. Scripture also describes to us that the offspring of Adam belongs to Satan and the God of this world. Now, given that, we can see that in the first parable, Jesus claims to be plundering Satan's house. The strong man. Let's remember that Satan has no need of man's money or man's possessions. Satan's possessions are people. He took ownership of them in the garden. And Jesus is saying that he, the son of God and the son of man, is finally taking them back for the kingdom of God. Do we have other evidence of that in scripture? We have the account of Jesus descending into hell after his crucifixion and before his resurrection. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high and led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. The... King James, I think the language is there, is that, and he led captives in his train. Jesus plundered Satan's house. The lesson, even before the victory on the cross, Jesus had the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit to free the sons of Adam from demonic possession. Satan could do nothing about it, and Satan certainly wasn't plundering himself. The big question, or a big question. Can we participate, we, the church, in the plunder of the strong man's house? Can we, in the name of Jesus, the only name given in heaven whereby men might be saved, can we take back people for the kingdom? Your first thought might be, well, no, we can't do that. Hmm. But do you remember that Jesus said to his disciples, his first church members, when they were in the district of Caesarea Philippi, there's an interesting story about that. But Jesus said about the church, I will build my church and what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's be clear. We in our own strength 
in our own strength, we cannot prevail against the gates of hell. Don't even try in your own strength. But God works on earth through his Holy Spirit. And the church is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And according to Jesus, the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, overcomes the gates of hell. And Satan cannot prevail against the power of God. Anybody happy about that? (laughs) I sure am. Here's something to pray about this week. How effectively are we tying up the strong man together as the church? How effectively are we plundering the strong man's house? Are we even trying? So let's talk for just a minute about blaspheming. What does it mean? The blaspheme. In Vine's expository dictionary, I found this. From blopto to endure, and from theme, speech. So blaspheming is speech that injures. It's a noun, the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things or profane talk. The word blasphemy is practically confined to speech defamatory of the divine majesty. That's Vine's dictionary. Hmm. They also had this note, which I thought was really helpful to understand this blaspheming the Holy Spirit. As to Christ's teaching concerning blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, e.g. that anyone with the evidence of the Lord's power before his eyes should declare it to be satanic, exhibited a condition of heart that exhibits a condition of heart beyond divine illumination and therefore hopeless. Divine forgiveness would be consistent with the moral nature, would with the moral nature of God, as to the Son of Man in his state of humiliation, there might be misunderstanding about who he is. That can be forgiven. Misunderstanding God can be forgiven, but not so with the Holy Spirit's power demonstrated. The unforgivable sin defined by John Piper. What then is it? The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. The consequences of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's not just this one passage here in Mark. It's discussed in Matthew and in Luke 
end in John. Matthew 12, Luke 11, John 10. The division seems to revolve around the division in the modern church seems to revolve around what we believe about eternal security. And I've got a really good discussion about that, but here's the problem. Both sides can cite other scripture that supports their conclusions. There are other questions in the scriptures that vex the student of scripture. And one thing is clear, though. It's that we should not break fellowship and turn on each other when we disagree. The truth is we're talking about judgment that belongs to God. He doesn't really need us to call balls and strikes. He's got that. So what's the position of Calvary Baptist Church? We hold to the belief that our salvation is eternal and secure. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit incurs a judgment of no hope for those who are already lost. Regarding the Christian, it's good to remember the parable of Jesus where he taught that the good shepherd left the 99 to go find the one who was lost. The Lord loves his bride, the church, and he will not let her perish. Are we supposed to accept every spiritual phenomena as being from God? One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the ability to discern the difference between his work and the unholy manifestations of unclean spirits designed to deceive. In 1 John, we see, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, so many that we that we could spend the rest of our time here this morning just naming the people and the organizations that are obviously false spirit. Wolves in sheep's clothing. How do we know the difference? We make sure we know the word. There's an opposite dynamic, which also we also have to look out for. That is, attributing to God what is actually the work of Satan. That's a backwards thing, right? This mistake has ruined individual believers, whole churches, and many unbelievers. This problem is worthy of its own sermon, but we can quickly see the severity of the problem in the prophecies of the coming man of lawlessness. He will deceive the entire world and make people, make people think that he is actually God. Another great topic for another time. 
It's wonderful that we are able to walk in grace toward one another. However, we should not blindly believe someone when they ascribe some work or teaching to the Holy Spirit. Even if signs and wonders are given as proof, we still must not believe them unless their teaching and purpose conforms to God's written word. It is his word which must test all things. Thankfully, we also have the Holy Spirit who's given to us partly to help us recognize what is true. We have to be discerning. It's also possible to be ignorant of what God's doing in a given situation. Don't be quick to judge. Don't make fun of things. Don't make, don't ridicule others, especially other believers, in situations where there's something there you're not comfortable with. You're not sure it's right. So it makes me better just to make, feel better just to make fun of it. You know, you don't have to do, just don't. Hold your tongue. Let God work things out. Have you blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have I? This is the understanding that I have at this point in my walk with Jesus. If you know that you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, and you know you have fellowship with him, you are not in danger of committing an unforgivable sin. You can't sin your way out of your salvation. There's no tally board inching you toward the abyss. Whoop, one too many. You're done. It's not like that. If, however, you have never known the work of the Holy Spirit in your own heart, and you hate God, and you're willing to disparage and insult the Holy Spirit and say things the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit does are really the work of Satan, then you are in the worst kind of trouble. It's the Holy Spirit who draws the heart of man to Jesus. If you're not already a child of God, then according to Jesus, if you then blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will remove all hope of being redeemed. It's like closing the door, slamming the door on the possibility of eternal life with Jesus. Obviously, if you're a believer, this settled, it's already settled. And I don't think, especially if you're walking with the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So, as for today, is it possible that I've misunderstood what Jesus was declaring to be the truth? 
Yes, of course. I'm fallible and I'm incomplete. If you disagree with my understanding of this passage, please be patient with me as we work together to advance the kingdom by pointing men and women to Jesus. Yes? Okay, finally, opposition number three. And this will go quickly. I mentioned a few minutes ago that we'll look at the second mention of Jesus being opposed by his family. What's interesting about this passage to me is that Jesus uses the situation to continue the work of advancing his kingdom. There's an important message there for us. This time, the trouble from his family is not direct opposition. He's a little crazy, you know. This time, it's simple distraction. Jesus is inside a house, and the family shows up. There's a whole bunch of people around him. The family can't even get near him. They get someone to tell Jesus that they want to talk to him. Jesus is in the midst of doing ministry. Distraction. Jesus responds by continuing to focus on the job at hand. He turns the distraction into a teachable moment. Verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here we see Jesus identifying family according to who walks in obedience to his father. Remember that during his entire ministry, he's preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. And Jesus took this interpretation, this interruption, as an opportunity to reveal that the most important relationships in the kingdom are spiritual, not physical. Family is awesome. Family is high priority. But Jesus wants top priority. Have you ever taken your eye off the ball? There it is, a second baseball reference. Have you ever been distracted from the assignment Jesus gave you by pretty little shiny things in the dirt? Sometimes we can be like the dog who sees a squirrel. He's doing his thing, boy. He's watching you. He's a dog. Squirrel. Quickly distracted, and now the only thing that matters is that squirrel going up the tree. Distraction is a sure way to end up with very little spiritual fruit. Distraction comes to us in so many ways, and sometimes it's even family, the demands of family. So here's my last tough question for the day. Kind of brings us home. How many of us have not yielded to the Lord's will because we thought it might or we knew it could create an issue with our family or one specific person in our family? Jesus promised that following him would be difficult but worth it. His claim on our lives supersedes that of our earthly families. Luke 14 makes it clear that putting Jesus first and above everything else is required to be a disciple. Not just everything else, everyone else.
thankfully, God doesn't just take us and shoot us off into space to go do something for him. We still get to be with our family. And a lot of times, the thing he's got, the assignment that he has for us, is directly related to our family. Yeah. Jesus has promised that we'll be rewarded for following him faithfully. It's no empty promise, Calvary. The empty tomb proved that he will keep every promise.